MSW Media. Big shout out today to Helix Sleep. Take their two-minute sleep quiz and they'll match you to a mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life. Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash dailybeans and use code HELIXPARTNER. Hello and welcome to the Daily Beans for Wednesday, December 6th, 2023. Today, Jack Smith lays out some evidence and reveals a potential new unindicted co-conspirator in a new filing. Tommy Tuberville relents and more than 400 high-level military promotions have been confirmed. The gold bars at issue in Menendez's indictment are tied to the businessman who allegedly bribed him in an earlier robbery. A former Harvard disinformation scholar says she was pushed out of her job after the college faced pressure from Facebook. David Weiss's office reveals their defense of potential Hunter Biden motions to dismiss based on selective or vindictive prosecution. A top Tucker Carlson producer has been accused of sexual assault. A China-backed DeSantis donor hires a GOP lobbyist and fails to disclose foreign ties. And Speaker Mike Johnson announces he's obstructing justice. I'm your host, Allison Gill. Hey, everybody. Happy Wednesday. Happy Hump Day. Uh, I just want to remind everyone that there is a Patreon, MSW Media Patreon meetup in D.C. this April. Uh, there's going to be more information coming soon. It's for patrons of Jack, uh, Daily Beans, Clean Up on L45. And um, we're going to send all that information and RSVP forms out to you shortly. Uh, but that's going to be in April. And of course, you know, I mean, we're limited to the number of people that the max capacity of the venue is. Uh, and the first, you know, however many people that sign up are, are the ones that will be able to go. If you're not a patron yet and you've been thinking of becoming one, you want an invite to this shindig. We're going to have Glenn Kirshner speaking. Andy McCabe will be there. Pete Strzok will be there. I'll be there. I think Dana's coming. We've gonna, we're going to have all sorts of special guests, and uh, I will uh, feed you, and there'll be an open bar. And it will be a, a really good time. It's going to be fun. Uh, it's going to be in April. Again, if you want to become a patron, patreon.com slash Mueller, she wrote. Also, there's a new episode of Clean Up on Aisle 45 out today, and it is by far my favorite episode. If you haven't listened to it yet, give it a give it a listen. Let me know what you think. And today on this show, I will have another B-Block segment because I'm going to go over the new Jack Smith filing in depth with you. Uh, there's a lot of new information in there. Of course, Andy McCabe and I will cover it in detail on this next weekend's episode of the Jack podcast. But I had a little extra time today, so I wanted to go over it with you. We have a lot of news to get to. So let's hit the hot notes. Hot notes. And first up, we did it. We won. The Senate, in a single stroke on Tuesday, approved about 425 military promotions after Tuberville of Alabama, who lives in Florida, ended a months-long blockade of nominations over his opposition to a Pentagon abortion policy, one that I called for in my Washington Post op-ed to grant leave for people for reproductive health care. Now, Tuberville had been under pressure from members of both sides of the political aisle to end his holds as senators complained about the toll it was taking on service members and their families and on military readiness. Quote, thank God these military officers will now get the promotions they so rightfully earned. That's Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer. The action came hours after Tuberville said Tuesday he's not going to hold the promotions of these people any longer. 
He said holds would continue, however, for about 11 of the highest ranking military officers, four stars and above, uh, except we're just going to go ahead and promote them through roll call votes. There's only 11 of them. There were 451 military officers affected by the holds as of November 27th. It's a stance that has left key national security positions unfilled and military families with an uncertain path forward. Now, Tuberville was blocking the nominations in opposition to Pentagon rules that allow travel reimbursement when a service member has to go out of state to get an abortion or other reproductive care. President Joe Biden's administration instituted the new rules after the Supreme Court overturned the nationwide right to an abortion, and some states have limited or banned the procedure. Quote, well, certainly we're encouraged by the news. That's what the Pentagon spokesman Brigadier General Pat Ryder said in a briefing on Tuesday. We continue to stay engaged with Senator Tuberville and the Senate directly to urge that all holds on all our general flag officer nominations be lifted. Now, critics said Tuberville's tactics were a mistake because he was blocking promotions of people who had nothing to do with the policy he opposed. Quote, why are we punishing American heroes who have nothing to do with the dispute? That was Dan Sullivan, Senator, Republican from Alaska. Quote, remember, we are against the Biden abortion travel policy, but why are we punishing people who have nothing to do with the dispute and if they get confirmed, can't fix it? No one has had an answer for that question because there is no answer, unquote. For months, many of the military officers directly impacted by Tuberville's holds declined to speak out because they can't. Fear of any comments would be seen as political. But as the pressure on the lives and the lives of the officers serving under them increased, they began to speak about how not being able to resettle their families in new communities was impacting not only them, but their military kids and their spouses. They talked about how some of their most talented junior officers were going to get out of the military because of the instability they saw around them. And they talked about how having to perform multiple roles because of so many vacancies was putting enormous additional stress on already overworked military communities. Now, the issue came to a head when U.S. Marine Corps Commandant General Eric Smith suffered a heart attack in October, just two days after he'd talked about the stresses that uh, having multiple jobs in the military had. Quote, we can't continue to do this to good families. Some of these groups that are all for these holds, they haven't thought through the implication of the harm it's doing to real American families. That was Senator Joni Ernst, Republican from Iowa. In response to the holds, Democrats have vowed to take up a resolution that would allow the Senate to confirm groups of military nominees at once during the remainder of the congressional term. But Republicans worried that the change could erode the powers of the minority in the Senate. So just this afternoon, all but 11 were promoted with one single voice vote. And those 11 roll call votes will take care of them, too, because that's what Democrats do. And here's what Speaker of the House Mike Johnson had to say about his release of the January 6th footage. Let's listen. Trust the American people to draw their own conclusions. We should not, they should not be dictated by some narrative and accept that as fact. So they can review the tapes themselves. Uh, we're going through a methodical process of releasing them as quickly as we can. As you know, we have to blur some of the faces of persons who uh, participated in, in, uh, in the events of that day because we don't want them to be retaliated against and, uh, and, and, and to be charged by the DOJ and, and to have other, uh, you know, concerns and problems. So uh, that's a slow process to get it done. We're working steadily on it. We've hired additional personnel to do that. And uh, all of those tapes ultimately at the end will, will be out so everybody can see them and draw their own conclusion. Yeah, that's obstruction of justice, my dude. Not to mention you've now released footage that shows the inner workings of the Capitol that our enemies now have. They can have that now. It's time for Mike Johnson to go. And by the way, a spokesperson for Mike Johnson came out a couple hours after that and said, no, 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 no. 
we didn't mean we were blurring them so that the DOJ wouldn't find out who they were. We were blurring them because we didn't want the public to find out who they were and harass them. Sure. Yeah. Walk back that obstruction of justice statement, whatever you say. Next up from Kayla Gallagher at The Messenger and content warning for sexual assault here. A former employee at Fox News is reportedly suing the network and one of their former top producers accusing him of sexually assaulting and harassing him after promising to advance his career while the network dissuaded him from filing any complaints. Andrew Delancey, a former staffer at Fox, has filed a lawsuit in New York uh, alleging that Justin Wells, who was a producer of the former top primetime star Tucker Carlson, of grabbing his genitals at Wells' apartment shortly after he was hired in 2008. Delancey alleges that Wells first contacted him over a Facebook group for Fox employees in 2007, telling Delancey he, quote, caught his eye, according to the Washington Post, and encouraged him to take a job at the New York City Corporation at Fox, leaving his post at a local affiliate. When Delancey arrived, Wells allegedly offered up an unusual amount of attention and gave him monogrammed network merchandise. Delancey also claimed that when he told Wells he could not afford New York on an entry-level salary. Wells got him an interview at another network. Wells utilized his status at Fox to prey on Mr. Delancey. That's what the complaint reads. And the lawsuit alleges that less than a month into Delancey working at the network, Wells invited him to join other employees at a gay bar, but first insisted they meet for drinks at Wells' apartment. There, Delancey alleges that Wells easily overpowered him, forced him onto the bed, and then repeatedly grabbed his genitals, causing severe pain despite Delancey yelling no, according to the Washington Post. Delancey also alleges that the supervisor made him swear he wouldn't complain about Wells to human resources. In 2017, Delancey publicly shared what he experienced in a Facebook post detailing his assault. Delancey didn't name Wells in the post, and Wells reportedly messaged him to ask who the post was about. Oh, that's not suspicious at all. Mr. Delancey will no longer be intimidated by Mr. Wells or Fox. That's what Delancey's lawyer, Alfredo Polici, said in a statement to the Post. Our firm is committed to holding Justin Wells and Fox accountable for their unlawful and abhorrent actions. At the time of the incident, Wells was working for a show hosted by Greta Van Sustern. Shortly after, he became a senior producer on Carlson's show, but was ousted with the host in April after the Fox News thing, the Dominion thing. He now produces Carlson's show on X formerly known as Twitter. Ooh. Harmeet Dillon, an attorney for Wells, told the Post the lawsuit is meritless, said her client denies the allegations unequivocally and will contest them vigorously. The full complaint in the lawsuit, which claims assault and battery for Wells and negligence and sexual harassment for the network, was filed on Monday, just ahead of the deadline for the New York Survivors Act, which lifts the statute of limitations for civil complaints for survivors of sexual assault. Fox has filed a motion to move the case to federal court as Delancey no longer lives in New York. Next up from NBC Channel 4 in New York, at least four gold bars that are tied to the FBI search of Senator Robert Menendez's home have been directly linked to a New Jersey businessman now accused of bribing him. And that's according to Bergen County prosecutor records from a 2013 robbery case. <laughs> the businessman, Fred Davies, reported... Uh, to police. He was the victim of an armed robbery way back in 2013 and asked the police to recover the gold bars stolen from him. In the 2013 robbery, Davies reported $500,000 in cash and 22 gold bars were stolen. Edgewater police records show police later caught four suspects with the stolen goods. To get his property back, Davies signed a property release form certifying the gold bars belonged to him. Each gold bar has its own serial number, Davies said to investigators in 2014. 
in a transcript made by prosecutors and police who recovered and returned to Davies the stolen gold bars. They're all stamped. You will never see two stamped the same way. And then I used them to bribe Senator Menendez. Okay, I added that little extra part there. A decade later, the FBI said the four gold bars with unique serial numbers had come into the possession of Senator Menendez and his wife, Nadine. Two bars were found during the FBI search of the Clifton home. While an indictment stated Nadine Menendez gave the other two gold bars to a jeweler to sell, but photos of those two bars were recovered. In the 2023 bribery indictment against uh, the senator and Davies, prosecutors included photos of some of the alleged bribes found in Menendez's home, including the four gold bars. The serial numbers of the four gold bars in the bribery indictment appear to be an exact match to the four gold bars Davies certified as stolen and returned to him in 2013. Wow, that's a, you can't get more of a direct tie than that. For example, a Swiss Bank Corporation gold bar with serial number 590005 that the FBI said it seized from the senator's home in 2023 was also reported stolen by Davies and returned to him a decade earlier. Davies' signature and initial appears on the evidence log, which included each specific gold bar with the corresponding serial number. All of this, quote, spells bad news for Senator Menendez because the chain of custody, it appears, is going to be really easy to prove up. That's uh, NBC legal analyst Danny Cavallos. It was November 2013 when Davies told police he was the victim of a gunpoint robbery at his penthouse apartment in Edgewater. The millionaire developer said he was tied to a chair and the thieves made off with cash, gold and jewelry. The four suspects were quickly caught and later pled guilty. Davies attended court proceedings as the victim. On December 13, 2013, Davies signed the documents to get the property back. Savallo said if Davies, in fact, gave the gold bars to Robert and Nadine Menendez, that alone does not prove the crime of bribery. There has to be a quid pro quo. What was it in exchange for? The FBI says the quid pro quo between Menendez and Davies included efforts by the senator to influence the New Jersey U.S. Attorney's Office, which in 2018 was investigating Davies, for a separate crime of bank fraud. Hmm. Davies and Menendez, along with other co-defendant Nadine Menendez, Whale Hanna, and Jose Uribe, all deny any wrongdoing, and they have all pled not guilty. And next up, from Donnie O'Sullivan at CNN, a nationally recognized online disinformation researcher has accused Harvard University of shutting down the project she led to protect its relationship with megadonor and Facebook founder Mark Zuckerberg. The allegations made by Dr. Joan Donovan raise questions about the influence the tech giant may have had over seemingly independent research. Facebook's parent company, Meta, has long sought to defend itself against research that implicates it in harming society, from the proliferation of election disinformation to creating addictive habits in children. Details of the disclosure were first reported by the Washington Post. Beginning in 2018, Donovan worked for the Shorenstein Center at Harvard University's John F. Kennedy School of Government and ran its Technology and Social Change Research Project, where she led studies of media manipulation campaigns. But last year, Harvard informed Donovan it was shutting her project down. In a disclosure sent last week to Harvard leaders and U.S. Education Secretary Miguel Cardona and made public on Monday, Donovan alleges that the university began restricting her research after the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative donated $500 million to fund a new university-wide center on artificial intelligence. The Chan Zuckerberg Initiative is the philanthropy run by Zuckerberg and his wife, Priscilla Chan, who both attended Harvard. Harvard is strongly disputing Donovan's claim, 
James Francis Smith, a spokesperson at the university, said in a statement to CNN on Monday, allegations of unfair treatment and donor interference are false. The narrative is full of inaccuracies and baseless insinuations, particularly the suggestion that Harvard Kennedy School allowed Facebook to dictate its approach to research. $500 million? By longstanding policy to uphold academic standards, all research projects at Harvard Kennedy School need to be led by faculty members. Joan Donovan was hired as a staff member, not a faculty member, to manage a media manipulation project. When the original faculty leader of the project left Harvard, the school tried for some time to identify another faculty member who had time and interest to lead the project. After that effort did not succeed, the project was given more than a year to wind down. Joan Donovan was not fired and most members of the research team chose to remain at the school in new roles. Well, why couldn't you just make her a member of the faculty? He added that Harvard continues to research misinformation and social media's role in it, pointing out Harvard hosts and made available to the public the Facebook documents leaked by former Facebook employee Francis Haugen in a separate whistleblower complaint in October 2021 known as the Facebook Papers, and Harvard also runs an academic journal on misinformation. The Chan Zuckerberg Initiative said it had no involvement in Donovan's departure from Harvard. Meta declined to comment. CNN has also reached out to the U.S. Department of Education. The Massachusetts Attorney General's Office said it received the disclosure and was reviewing it. The Chan Zuckerberg Initiative donation came shortly after Haugen's blockbuster complaint. Huh. So Haugen blew the whistle. Chan Zuckerberg gave Harvard $500 million, and then Dr. Joan goes away. Hmm. I'm sure it's just a coincidence. Following the release of the Facebook papers, Donovan was involved in an effort to help archive the documents and make them publicly available to researchers, students, policymakers, and journalists. Quote, this is a shocking betrayal of Harvard's academic integrity and the public interest. That's Libby Liu, the CEO of Whistleblower Aid, a nonprofit legal group that previously worked with Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen. In August, Donovan announced that she would join Boston University's College of Communication as an assistant professor, officially ending her affiliation with Harvard Kennedy School. She told the Crimson that she had to leave because she felt the Kennedy School didn't back me as a scholar. And from Ben Weeder at the Miami Herald, a Tampa refrigerant company with direct Chinese backing was publicly disclosed as a new client of top lobbyist Brian Ballard five days after the Miami Herald revealed that the company had been a major donor to Ron DeSantis and other Florida Republicans. But despite the fact that the company called iGas USA is partially owned by a state-controlled Chinese company, the lobbying registration form filed by Ballard's company initially failed to indicate that it was part foreign, foreign owned. That's required by law. So that's bad. The firm planned to submit an amended registration form reflecting the correct information. But IGAS didn't respond to multiple requests for comments. And under the Lobbying Disclosure Act, lobbyists are required to indicate whether any foreign entity holds at least a 20% stake in the company on behalf of which they are lobbying. But this rule is always and frequently, all, like all the time, ignored by lobbyists. And that's according to Craig Holman, the lobbyist for Public Citizen, a consumer advocacy group that seeks to limit corporate influence on public policy. Quote, it's something we really have to crack down on, he said. As the Herald previously reported, when the company was first established in 2018, a state-controlled Chinese company invested $10 million in the venture and took 34% stake in it. Since then, the company has ramped up its political giving to the tune of more than $1.1 million. The giving, which has come from the company, its employees, and an associated company, has largely favored Republicans in Florida, many of whom 
have voiced strong concerns about growing Chinese influence. Hmm. No politician has benefited more than Ron DeSantis and his committees. The committees backing him have taken in more than $340,000 just in the past five years. The increase in political giving comes as the company is in a fight with the U.S. EPA, which is phasing down gases called hydrofluorocarbons that iGas imports from China. The gases are used to cool air conditioners and refrigerators, but they're a major driver of climate change. Hiring Ballard, a lobbyist firm in Florida who's now one of the most powerful lobbyists in Washington, is the latest effort by the company to influence federal policy. The lobbying registration showed that Ballard and another lobbyist at his firm, John O'Hanlon, had been hired on the company's behalf to lobby on phase-down of hydrofluorocarbons. Hmm, Ballard was once described as the most powerful federal lobbyist during the administration of former President Trump and has been described as being at the inner circle of DeSantis. And our little last story here. A while back, Hunter Biden and his attorney, Abby Lowell, filed a motion for Rule 17B subpoenas. This is in his gun charge case. And they were asking leave of court, permission from the court to subpoena Trump, Barr, Donahue, the former acting deputy uh, attorney general, and Rosen, former acting attorney general. And he wanted to subpoena them under Rule 17B. It was not a motion to dismiss his indictment for vindictive and selective prosecution. It was a Rule 17B subpoena motion. But in response to this 17B motion, David Weiss's office, that special counsel put in there by Barr to investigate Hunter Biden for over five years, David Weiss's office spent a few dozen pages responding and, and focused on their defense against vindictive and selective prosecution. They only spent a paragraph or two addressing the Rule 17b subpoena thing. And David Weiss's office is right on the law in this filing. But now Hunter Biden and his lawyer, Abby Lowell, have the prosecution's entire argument against vindictive and selective prosecution and will now be able to craft a superb motion to dismiss the charges based on vindictive and selective prosecution, knowing David Weiss's entire defense for that argument. So keep an eye out for that motion. It'll be a good one. All right, we'll be right back with a new filing from special counsel Jack Smith, followed by the good news. Everybody stick around. We'll be right back. After these messages, we'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Ever since I first found my custom mattress from Helix Sleep, my nights have been simply a dream. Literally, it's perfect for me. With the right amount of firmness, comfort, and support from my side sleeping self, Every night's slumber feels even better than the one before. I have never had a bed or mattress in my life. Just go to helixsleep.com slash dailybeans, take their two-minute sleep quiz, and they will match you to a customized mattress that will give you the best sleep of your life, and you'll get 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows. Step into the Helix universe with 20 uniquely designed mattresses, from the acclaimed Lux Collection to the newly released Elite Collection. They have specialized designs for everyone's individual preferences, including big and tall folks. They have ones designed just for kids. You can uncover your match with the two-minute Helix sleep quiz and have your perfect mattress delivered right to your doorstep free of charge. My mattress, as you all know, is the Helix Midnight. It's designed for side-sleeping folks like me who prefer a medium-firm bed, and I've been sleeping better than ever since it first arrived. Helix stands by their promise of quality. They have a 100-night in-home trial, and they also have a 10- or 15-year warranty, depending on the model, because nothing beats the comfort of home when testing a new mattress. So take the leap, skip the mattress store, Take the quiz, find your match, and start enjoying the best sleep of your life as well. 
Helix is offering 20% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash dailybeans and use code HELIXPARTNER. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. With Helix, better sleep starts now. Hi, I'm Liz Winstead. I'm Moji Alawode-L. And we're the hosts of Feminist Buzzkills, the only weekly podcast dedicated to keeping you informed while making you laugh as we all navigate this post-Roe v. Wade hellscape. The Supreme Court has declared that all of our uteri are just Airbnbs for the seat of the patriarchy. So every week we break down all the garbage news from that sketchy intersection of abortion and misogyny with the abortion providers and activists we need to be hearing from right now. Plus, we talk to your favorite comedians. Because face it, if your revolution doesn't have laughter, you're doing it wrong. Feminist Buzzkills drops Fridays wherever you get your podcasts. Listen, subscribe, join us on Patreon. Because when BS is popping, we pop off. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. All right. Cool new filing from Jack Smith. Thank you for indulging me in these B-block court filings. I love doing this. I love reading them over with you. I got going through them um, just a little bit at a time so that we can kind of understand. This is a nine-page filing. It comes from Jack Smith, Lisa Monaco. Government's notice pursuant to federal rule of evidence 404B. Bravo. Let me read you the intro and then I'll tell you what 404B is about. It says the government will provide the defendant and the court extensive advance notice of the intrinsic evidence it plans to introduce at trial including through its exhibit and witness lists, motions in limine, those are motions to prevent evidence from being entered from Donald Trump, and detailed trial brief setting for the government's planned trial presentation. In an abundance of caution, the government below notices evidence that, we want to tell you about evidence that, although intrinsic to the charged crimes, pre or post dates the charged criminal conspiracies. So this evidence pre and post dates the charged crimes. If the court were to find any part of the noticed evidence below is extrinsic, the evidence is also admissible under federal rule of evidence 404B because the government will offer it not to show the defendant's criminal propensity, but to establish his motive, intent, preparation, knowledge, absence of mistake, and common plan. So, What's happening here is that they're saying, we've got a bunch of evidence we're going to bring into trial that happened before the crimes and after the crimes at issue. And rule of evidence 404B generally prohibits evidence of prior crimes and wrongdoing to show conformity therewith. Like, you know, you can't bring in past crimes, but it can be admitted for these other purposes, to show intent and motive and planning, the things that we just listed, the things I just listed from the, from the filing. So that's what this is. This is evidence from shit Trump and his co-conspirators did before the time period in question, October, September, October, October 2020 to January 2021, and after the conspiracy. But And we want to bring it in under evidence 404B, not because it's part of the conspiracy, it's not evidence of the conspiracy, but because it's evidence of his intent. Now, the first paragraph, as set forth in the indictment, the defendant's criminal conspiracies relied on his knowingly false claims of election fraud. At trial, the government will introduce a number of public statements by the defendant himself in advance of the charged conspiracies, claiming there would be fraud in the 2020 presidential election. 
These statements showed mistrust in the results of the presidential election and laid the foundation for the defendant's criminal efforts. In addition to this intrinsic evidence of false statements about the 2020 election, the government will offer evidence reflecting the defendant's historical record of making such claims. For example, in November 2012, the defendant issued a public tweet making baseless claims that voting machines had switched votes from Romney to Obama. During the 2016 presidential campaign, the defendant claimed repeatedly with no basis that there was widespread voter fraud, including through public statements and tweets. For example, October 2016, he said, of course, there's large scale fraud happening on and before Election Day. Why do Republican leaders deny what's going on? So naive. The defendant's false claims about the 2012 and 2016 elections are admissible because they demonstrate the defendant's common plan of falsely blaming fraud for election results he does not like, as well as his motive, intent, and plan to obstruct the certification of the 2020 election results and illegitimately retain power. Then they go on to say, historical evidence of the defendant's common plan to refuse to commit to a peaceful transfer of power. We're going to bring this evidence in. To ensure the destabilizing impact of his widespread election fraud claims, in the run-up to the 2020 election, the defendant repeatedly refused to commit to a peaceful transition of presidential power if he lost the election. The government will offer proof of this refusal as intrinsic evidence of Trump's criminal conspiracies because it shows his plan to remain in power at any cost, even in the face of potential violence. For instance, on September 23, 2020, at a news conference, the defendant was asked whether win, lose, or draw in this election in light of rioting in many cities across the country, your so-called red and blue states, would he commit to making sure there's a peaceful transfer of power after the election? The defendant responded, well, we're going to have to see what happens. You know that. I've been complaining very strongly about the ballots, and the ballots are a disaster. Oh, the reporter interrupted the defendant and repeated, I understand, but people are rioting. There's violence. People are rioting. Do you commit to make sure there's a peaceful transfer of power? And the defendant responded, I know, I know. We want to have, we, we get rid of the ballots, and you'll have a very trans, we'll have a very peaceful, well, there won't be a transfer, frankly. There'll be a continuation. The ballots are out of control. You know it. Jack Smith goes on. Similarly, the government will offer evidence the defendant pursued the same strategy four years earlier in 2016. In the presidential debate on October 19, 2016, the defendant was asked if he would accept the results of that election, to which he responded, we'll look at it at the time. The debate moderator followed up. There's a tradition in this country. In fact, one of the prides of this country is the peaceful transition of power and that no matter how hard fought a campaign is, at the end of that campaign, the loser concedes to the winner and the country comes together in part in good for the good and good of the country. Are you saying you're not prepared now to commit to that principle? The defendant responded, what I'm saying is I'll tell you at the time. I'll keep you in suspense, okay? The defendant's consistent refusal to commit to a peaceful transfer of power, dating back to the 2016 presidential campaign, is admissible evidence of his plan to undermine the integrity of the presidential transition process when faced with the possibility of an election result that he would not like, as well as his motive, intent, and plan to interfere with the implementation of an election result with which he was not satisfied. That's evidence. Number three here, evidence of the defendant and co-conspirator's knowledge of the unfavorable election results and motive and intent to subvert them. The indictment lists multiple examples of the defendant's efforts during the charged conspiracies to pressure state officials to change the election results or appoint invalid electors in spite of the election results. 
The government also plans to introduce evidence of an effort undertaken by an agent and an indicted co-conspirator of the defendant who worked for his campaign to, immediately following the election, obstruct the vote count. On November 4th, 2020, the campaign employee exchanged a series of text messages with an attorney supporting the campaign's election day operations at the TCF Center in Detroit, where votes were being counted. In the messages, the campaign employee encouraged rioting and other methods of obstruction when he learned that the vote count was trending in favor of the defendant's opponent. Then there are one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight redacted lines. Then it says, the government will also show that around the time of those messages, an election official at the TCF Center observed that as Biden began to take the lead, a large number of untrained individuals flooded the TCF Center and began making illegitimate and aggressive challenges to the vote count. Thereafter, Trump made repeated false claims regarding election activities at the TCF Center, when in truth, his agent was seeking to cause a riot and disrupt the count. This evidence is admissible to demonstrate that the defendant, his co-conspirators, and agents had knowledge that the defendant had lost the election, as well as their intent and motive to obstruct and overturn legitimate results. So we're not just talking about obstruction at the Capitol now. We're talking about vote count in Detroit. And by the way, this unindicted co-conspirator, the campaign employee, there's no number associated with his status as an unindicted co-conspirator. This is a new unindicted co-conspirator. I, I, I'm pretty sure. And I'll tell you why in a second. All right, next up, pre and post conspiracy evidence that Trump and his co-conspirators suppressed proof their fraud claims were false. Suppressed proof that their fraud claims were false. So not only did they not have evidence of voter fraud, they had evidence proving there was none. And they retaliated against officials who undermined their criminal plans. The indictment provides evidence that the defendant repeatedly sidelined advisors and officials who told him or the public truth the truth about the election results and who pushed back on his false claims. The government will introduce additional evidence that this was the plan of the defendant and his co-conspirators, and that even after the charged conspiracies, they continued their efforts to stifle any dissent to their false claims of election fraud. One such example is the effort by the defendant and co-conspirator one. Beginning during the charged conspiracies and stretching into the summer of 2021 to retaliate against the former chief counsel to the RNC for publicly refuting the defendant and co-conspirator one's lies about election fraud. So you'll notice here, co-conspirator one is named. But when they talk about the agent, the campaign agent that caused riots on behalf of Trump in Detroit, there's no number associated. That means to me that that campaign agent is not co-conspirator one through six. This is a brand new one. It's number seven, lucky seven. And there's a bunch of redacted stuff here about co-conspirator one. They go on to say the government will also introduce post-conspiracy evidence of a continued retaliation against the chief counsel for publicly speaking the truth about the falsity of the defendant's claims, including the defendant, redacted, 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 redacted. Finally, in the summer of 2021, co-conspirator one took to Twitter to publicly attack the chief counsel over the same issue. The defendant and his co-conspirators and agents' aggression in stifling dissent 
against election fraud claims before, during, and after the charge conspiracies. It's all admissible to demonstrate the defendant and his co-conspirators' knowledge that their fraud claims were false, to establish their plan for depicting their election lies as true, and to show their intent to silence anyone who refuted their false claims. All kinds of evidence. Next up, pre- and post-conspiracy evidence of the defendant's public attacks on individuals, encouragement of violence, and knowledge of the foreseeable consequences. As the government has set forth at length in briefings related to the court's Rule 57-7 order, the defendant has established a pattern of using public statements and social media posts to subject his perceived adversaries to threats and harassment. The indictment includes examples of the defendant's targeting, including against his vice president. At trial, the government will introduce evidence of this conduct, including the defendant's public endorsement and encouragement of violence, and further will elicit testimony from witnesses about the threats and harassment they received after the defendant targeted them in retaliation to the 2020 election. The government plans to introduce evidence from a period in advance of the charged conspiracies that demonstrates the defendant's encouragement of violence. For instance, in response to a question during the September 29, 2020 presidential debate asking him to denounce the extremist group the Proud Boys, the defendant instead spoke publicly to them and told them to, quote, stand back and stand by. Members of the group embraced the defendant's words as an endorsement and printed merchandise with them as a rallying cry. As discussed below, after the Proud Boys and other extremist groups participated in obstructing the congressional certification on January 6th, the defendant made clear they were acting consistent with his intent and direction. This is huge, okay? And this is why this evidence of pre- and post-conspiracy is needed under Rule 404B, because Jack Smith just said Trump made clear the Proud Boys were acting consistent with Trump's intent and direction. Long after the charged conduct, the defendant continued to falsely attack two Georgia election workers, despite being on notice that his claims about the 2020 election were false and had subjected them to vile, racist, and violent threats and harassment. As set forth in the indictment, during the charged conspiracy, the defendants and his co-conspirators spread knowing lies about the election workers and inspired death threats against them. In late December 2022, the House Select Committee to investigate the January 6th attack on the U.S. Capitol published transcripts of its interviews with the election workers, in which the women provided graphic testimony about threats and harassment they endured after the defendant and his agents falsely accused them. And in apparent response... Trump then doubled down and recommenced his attacks that he continued them on the election workers in posts on Truth Social. He even zeroed in on one of the election workers, falsely writing that she was an election fraudster, a liar, and one of the treacherous monsters who stole the country and that she would be in legal trouble. The government will introduce such evidence to establish, further establish, Trump and his co-conspirators' plan of silencing, intent to silence those who spoke out against the defendant's false election fraud claims, the defendant's knowledge that his public attacks on officials, like those on his vice president, as described in the indictment, could foreseeably lead to threats, harassment, and violence, and the defendant's repeated choice to attack individuals with full knowledge of his effect. It also constitutes, after the fact, corroboration of the defendant's intent. This is key. Because even after it was incontrovertibly clear 
that the defendant's public false claims targeting individuals caused them harassment and threats. The defendant persisted, meaning that the jury may properly infer he intended that result. He persisted after violent threats. Therefore, the jury may infer Trump intended violent threats against them. Finally, evidence of the defendant's encouragement of violence and the consequences of his public attacks is admissible to allow the jury to consider the credibility and motives of witnesses who may be the continuing victims of the defendant's attacks. Next up, post-conspiracy evidence of the defendant's steadfast support and endorsement of rioters. And here is where we get into the heart and soul. As described in the government's opposition to the defendant's motion to strike language from the indictment, the government plans to introduce evidence at trial showing that in the years since January 6th attack on the Capitol, the defendant has openly and proudly supported individuals who criminally participated in obstructing the congressional certification that day, including by suggesting that he will pardon them if reelected, even as he has conceded that he had the ability to influence their actions during the attack. Of particular note are the specific January 6th offenders whom the defendant has supported, namely individuals of some of the most serious crimes charged in relation to January 6th, such as seditious conspiracy and violent assaults on police officers. During a September 17th, 2023 appearance on Meet the Press, for instance, Trump said regarding Proud Boys leader Enrique Tarrio, who was convicted of seditious conspiracy, quote, I want to tell you he and other people have been treated horribly. The defendant then criticized the kinds of lengthy sentences received by defendants who, like Tario, committed the most serious crimes on January 6th. And similarly, Trump has chosen to publicly and vocally support the January 6th Choir, a group of defendants held at the District of Columbia jail, many of whose criminal history or crimes on January 6th were so violent that their pretrial release would pose a danger to the public. The defendant, nonetheless, has financially supported and celebrated these offenders, many of whom assaulted law enforcement on January 6th, by promoting and playing their recording of the national anthem at all political rallies and calling them hostages. Evidence of the defendant's post-conspiracy embrace of particularly violent and notorious rioters is admissible to establish Trump's motive and intent on January 6th that he sent supporters, including groups like the Proud Boys, whom he knew were angry and whom he now calls patriots, to the Capitol to achieve the criminal objective of obstructing the congressional certification. In addition, his statements in this time period agreeing then he held and still holds enormous influence over his supporters' actions, and that is evidenced of his knowledge and intent to obstruct the certification, as he chose not to exercise that influence to mitigate the violence on January 6th. And perhaps most importantly, Jack Smith says, the defendant's embrace of January 6th rioters is evidence of his intent during the charged conspiracies, because it shows that these individuals acted as he directed them to act. Indeed, this evidence shows that the rioters' disruption of the certification proceeding is exactly what the defendant intended on January 6th. His continued support, I'm talking off the record now, his con- Trump's continued support of the Proud Boys, offering them pardons, having the January 6th choir, calling them patriots. That is evidence that they did exactly what he wanted them to do on January 6th. 
So back to the filing. Finally, evidence of the defendant's statements regarding possible pardons for January 6th offenders is admissible to help the jury assess the credibility and motives of trial witnesses, because through such comments, the defendant is publicly signaling that the law does not apply to those who act at his urging, regardless of the legality of their actions. Extremely powerful filing. Uh, I'm pretty sure Judge Chutkin is going to allow all of this evidence in under 404B because it does help prove intent uh, and planning. Um, So uh, we will look for a ruling uh, from her on that. And we should get the ruling on Trump's motion to dismiss on statutory grounds and for uh, vindictive and selective prosecution, maybe this week, maybe next week. Um, But we also know that, uh, you know, from uh, my friend John Allen at NBC, people have gotten their jury summons and quizzes in the mail or their jury summons in the mail for March 4th. And they say to be there on February 9th. And those two dates match when Judge Chutkin has the jury meeting for the first time at the courthouse February 9th and the trial date starting on March 4th. So it's out in the mail. It's three months away, which makes me wonder when Merrick Garland is actually going to file those appeals for the sentences of the Oath Keepers and the Proud Boys. Because he filed notice to do so for the Oath Keepers in June and in October for the Proud Boys that he is going, he said, I intend to file an appeal for their short sentences. I would think he would want that done by the time they made sentencing recommendations for Trump. But maybe Merrick Garland is waiting for those interlocutory appeals, the ones that, that Trump has filed motions to dismiss on constitutional grounds that have to be decided before the March trial begins. Maybe Merrick Garland is waiting for that. But I, I would think he would want to file for appeal for those sentences, regardless of what happens with Trump. So we'll see what ends up happening. Uh, all right, everybody, we have a lot of good news to get to, but we have to take a quick break. Stick around. We'll be right back. Everybody, welcome back. It's time for the good news. Who likes good news, everyone? Then good news, everyone. Good news, good news. And if you have any good news, confessions, corrections, you want to play what the mu- find the cat, opine on the bovine, what the hell's in that shell, cat me if you can, anything like that, any kind of animal guessing game, we're down for that. Send us baby pictures. You want to do a shout out to a loved one. Shit kids say, shit you say, shit your relatives say. It's the holidays. There's going to be some shit that somebody says, right? If you have a small business you want to shout out, um, send that to us or your small business. What are you making? What are you creating? Let us know. You can send that to us at dailybeanspod.com and click on contact along with anything else you want to send us. Holiday pictures, happy pet, adoptable pets in your area, pod pet tax, you name it, send it to us. First up from JB, pronoun she and her. It warms my heart that you went to me first in the Gimme Gimmies. They are my husband's favorite band. I only came to them later in life when we were choosing our wedding dance song. Most regular wedding songs suck and we weren't sure we wanted to go goofy. Then one day my husband was playing the Divas album and their beautiful ukulele cover of Crazy For You came on. We knew instantly it was the song. It was perfect. For tax, I'm sharing my daughter's wacky Christmas cookies. Oh, they're beautiful. Dude, I want to eat them. Can I have these? Can I have these? These are gorgeous. Thank you for that. Yeah, me first and the gimme gimme's are just, they're wonderful. Next up, not guilty by association, pronouns he and him. I found out on Thanksgiving that the man who married into my family had been convicted earlier that week for his role in January 6th. 
You may have noticed headlines for a defendant whose gobbledygook sovereign citizen defense failed to win over the judge. That was him. I had seen his Facebook post leading up to January 6th and knew he had been at the rally, but hadn't followed closely and hoped he'd been smart enough not to go to the Capitol. It was not so. He was one of the first up the southwest steps of the Capitol and was convicted in part for using a megaphone to lead the attackers who were pushing bike racks into the line of Capitol police defenders to force their way into the building, where at least one police officer was injured. His wife is one of the nicest people you could meet, and I would generally say she doesn't deserve to be caught up in this, but she appears to be 100% in support of her husband. So I have a complicated and mixed feelings. Their children definitely don't deserve to be put through this, but I place the blame for that mostly on the parents, with a generous dose to share with every right-wing shithead who spread the lies that led to the insurrection. Donald Trump most of all. In addition to the other harm that was caused that day, many people who might otherwise have led a blameless life are in prison because they believed the lies and their families are suffering as well. Justice for her husband should be a good amount of time behind bars for his efforts to overthrow our democracy. But justice will not fully be served until all the leaders of the insurrection are in jail and paying for their crimes. So much pain has been caused by Trump and his toadies and sycophants. And every day that brings us closer to all of them convicted for their crimes is a good day in my book. For some good news, shout out to my three LGBT kiddos who have helped me change my views on so much and who will all be voting age in 2024 in the election to help keep the fascists out of power. And for Pod Pet Tax, attaching a photo of our cat, Boudica. We named after the fierce Celtic warrior queen, but she has turned out to be anything but fierce. In this picture, she has jumped up into my lap to let me know it was time for me to quit working and give her lunch. I guess there's some strength of will there. Look at this beautiful baby. What a funny face. I love her face. She's beautiful. Thank you so much for sending that in. Wow, that's heavy for the fam. And you know what? You see, you, you, uh, you know, uh, Harry Dunn's a friend of mine. We talk about this all the time. You got the, you know, the hitman, but you got to get the people who sent the hitman. All right, next up from Carla. My brother Tim has been blind for about 10 years, and five years ago, he got a guide dog, Zydeco. Of course, he's a great dog. He wouldn't have passed the rigorous training he received, but recently he went above and beyond all expectations. Tim and Zydeco were taking a walk in the rain, and some dog had pooped on the sidewalk, and the owner didn't clean it up. Tim stepped right in it, slipped, and started to fall backwards. Zydeco planted his feet firmly until Tim regained his balance. Good boy, Zydeco. Oh, that's great. Look at Zydeco. What a great story. Send me your service animal stories. I love them. I love service animals so much. I love all animals, but service animals too. Thank you for that, Carla. Next up from Warm Orange. Hello to the estimated AG and DG and the Splendid Leguminati. Do you mean esteemed or estimated? I mean, I suppose I could be estimated. I recently discovered the podcast. I'm a fan. A quick background about me. I'm a 30-something millennial that works in the tech world. I'm also a proud participant in my local kink community in North Carolina. Being that I'm a millennial, I've lived through some blissfully unaware peace in the 90s, jarring realities in the aughts, rays of hope in the late aughts, and bleak coming of age in the late 10s to today. Let's just say I'm a bleeding blue-hearted liberal, both by choice and absolute survival necessity. Also, because I'm in the kink world, I'm fluent in the world of consent, negotiation, and sex positivity, but still working daily to be better than the me of yesterday. I love that. Okay, background out of the way. I wanted to formally thank you for all the reporting on the awful tomfoolery that is Tim Ballard in the Operation Underground Railroad. Given my involvement in my local kink community, I've crossed paths with a number of folks 
that work in the adult entertainment and sex worker space, as well as countless allies of such persons. As such, to say the vice operations such as OUR paint the worst image of workers, facilitations, and patrons in this space would be a gross understatement. Stigma of sex work via religious, primarily evangelical concepts of purity, shame, and fear of the Almighty have fostered an environment where manipulators such as Tim Ballard can exist under the guise of saving trafficked persons. Because how else would somebody respond to the question of, is there anything you wouldn't do to save a child? I know, it's so gross. I could go on and on about what OUR has done significantly more harm than good for ensuring the safety of those sex workers and their, and their patrons. But I'll summarize my point by saying this. When's the last time you've seen lawmakers and or law enforcement in America advocate for anything other than the eradication of the sex work and adult entertainment industry? So thank you for getting this story out there. I hope to write more in the future. And thank you to the listeners for indulging me in this message. For pet tax, I currently don't have pets, but I did foster two guinea pigs for about three months uh, in 2021. I've attached photos of the two sisters, Florence, white with orange spots, eating politely, and Sigrid, brown and white daring me to read out loud uh, her weight on the scale. Thanks for y'all's time. Look at the babies. Uh, They're so cute. Great post. Thank you, warm orange. Sex work is work. Next up from anonymous pronoun she and her. I have a misheard song lyric. It escaped me for a while, but I finally heard it again the other weekend. The Animal Song by Savage Garden. I couldn't ever really understand why it was supposedly so romantic to be running around the jungle like a cannibal. I mean, to each their own, but that didn't really click with me, even though I love the song. It took me years to realize the lyric is, because I want to live like animals, careless and free like animals. I want to live, I want to run through the jungle, the wind in my hair and sand in my feet. That makes way more sense. You think I would have realized that the title of the song being called The Animal Song. P.S. Underrated band, even though they aren't together anymore. I love their music. Thanks for all you ladies and the staff that did everything that you do. You're one of the only podcasts I never skip episodes on. Thank you. For pet tax, here's Toby, who is a perfect height to be lazy and beg for food at the same time. Oh, Toby, with your chin on the couch. Adorable. Thank you for that. I haven't thought of Savage Garden in a while. I love that band. Next up, Peg T, she and her. Has no one said the upcoming Leguminati Summit will amount to more than a hill of beans? (laughs) And now that it's in D.C., it will be more than a hill of beans on the hill? And if you invite the Clintons... It will be more than a hill of beans on the hill with Hill and Bill. (laughs) I mean, the joke's right there. Bet tax. It's a very good cats. Henry and Clementine fighting for possession of the couch. Henry is using the strategy of the aggressive ooze. Seriously, the summit is an awesome gift to all of us. Thank you. P.S. I would like to submit for consideration of the seasonal political slogan, vote Grampus, not Krampus in 2024. I love it. Thank you. Look at these beautiful kitties. Ooh. The coloring on the dark one, like, is that a ragdoll? Beautiful kitty and the orange floof. Nice tail. Thank you for that submission. Thank you, all of you, for your submissions. Thank you for putting up with my raspy me first and the gimme gimme's voice. I really appreciate you doing that. Dana will be back soon. I know she's on vacation. She's taken some well-deserved time off. I miss her and love her, too. Thank you for hanging in with me during these times. Uh, Thank you for letting me bring you the news. I really appreciate it. And uh, everybody, please check out me and Pete today on Clean Up on L45. Seriously, my favorite episode I've ever recorded of that podcast. And subscribe. It's free. It's free to subscribe. I'll be back in your ears tomorrow. Until then, please take care of yourselves. Take care of each other. Take care of the planet. Take care of your mental health. Vote blue over Q. Oh, take care of your family and bring someone with you. I've been AG and them's the beans.
The Daily Beans is written and executive produced by Allison Gill, with additional research and reporting by Dana Goldberg. Sound design and editing is by Desiree McFarlane, with art and web design by Joel Reeder with Moxie Design Studios. Music for The Daily Beans is written and performed by They Might Be Giants, and the show is a proud member of the MSW Media Network, a collection of creator-owned podcasts dedicated to news, politics, and justice. For more information, please visit mswmedia.com. MSW Media. I'm Frances Callier. And I'm Angela V. Shelton. And we're Frangela. You know what you need in your life? Hmm. The Final Word Podcast. Yes, you do. That's right. It is the final word on all things political and pop cultural. Where we make real news real funny. Where we inspire you so you can hashtag resist. Subscribe and get a new episode of The Final Word Podcast each week. It's the news we think you need to hear. That's right. We think you need to hear it. Okay. Yeah, it's what we say so. That's right. And because all we do is give, every Thursday you can listen to our hysterical podcast, Idiot of the Week. We round up the stupid because you know what? Somebody has to. Okay. All we do is give. Give.